Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and this is the next but extremely unusual podcast in the Free Zone Frontier series. And just by happenstance and good fortune and a little bit of pre-planning, we have three experts in their fields and two who are in the Free Zone, Steve Crine and Howard Getson, and a third, Matthew Pinksker. And Matthew is a professor, a historian, and teaches at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania, and his specialty is Abraham Lincoln. So he's in his basement right now, which is basically a Lincoln bunker, a Lincoln bunker, which is all things Lincoln are surrounding him, and a connector, which I've never experienced before in all my podcasting days, is that they're cousins. All three of our guests today are cousins, and you share grandmothers, right? Is that it? That there's a cousin connection through grandmothers who are sisters, right? Correct. So Howard and Matthew share a grandmother, and their, their grandmother was my grandmother's sister. Yeah, yeah. And just taking it back in history, when were the grandmothers born and grew up? What decades did they grow up in? So if you want the historian to answer it, this is where, <laughs> I was about to say I, that, Matt. <laughs> I saw this deer in the headlight look on. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're born in the United States in the early 20th century. You know, they come from immigrant families, but they're uh, American born and they grew up in the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. But like late 1918, 1920, and their parents came from Russia and Lithuania and Latvia. Yeah. So they arrived just in time to do the Spanish flu epidemic, First World War. So I knew Matthew was going to be on the podcast today, and I was so struck by your guest appearance at Genius Network, where Howard was the actual workshop coordinator and facilitator, while Joe Polish was doing his sabbatical, which is rapidly coming to an end now at the end of this year. I was just impressed with your passionate interest, first of all, in one of the greatest of the presidents. And I'll suggest that one of the three greatest presidents, probably, as people look backwards. But Matthew, I am put out a thought here in the form of a coach tool that possibly we attribute greatness to those presidents who were the right person at the right time in the right place for a major crossover from one industrial revolution to another. The United States, if I just read my history correctly, really, really emerged as a country right at the same time that what is called the first industrial revolution, which is the invention of steam power. And actually, I think James Watt shares with the American Revolution and Adam Smith shares with the American Revolution the date, historical date, 1776, that Watt's most famous steam engine came out in 1776. Adam Smith laid out the groundwork of what he understood was capitalist wealth creation in countries in 1776, and the Declaration of Independence was 1776. So in that period from 1760 to the end of the 18th century was really the birth of the Industrial Revolution, certainly in Great Britain, and then starting in the United States. 
So Matthew, when you think about this notion that great presidents probably emerge as great, not just for their political success and perhaps the economic success of their country, but also that their emergence on the national scene actually coincides with these revolutions, these industrial revolutions. At least that's the way it is possibly in the United States. I'm just asking you the question whether you have any thoughts about that. Going really deep with one president and probably being aware of what other presidents have done, what your thinking is about that. Sure. Well, you were describing the sort of first industrial revolution and Abraham Lincoln was born in 1809. By that point, what historians usually describe that was happening around his childhood and early adulthood was the market revolution. The expansion of the economy from the East Coast to the Mississippi Valley through a network of waterways improvements, internal improvements, communications improvements. And he was a, you know, an early adopter of all those technologies. And if you want to connect it to the, the cousin matrix here, Abraham Lincoln is the first president who ever got a patent, the only president who ever had a patent. He devised a device that would help boats on canals. And I always identify him as somebody who loved technology, whether it was, you know, the telegraph or the railroad or, you know, the canal boat system, he seemed to leap into it. And, uh, you know, I grew up with all of these cousins who were early adopters of every technology. And I can always remember Howard and Stephen and his brother, you know, we would compare gadgets and they would always brag about what they had discovered or they would show off what they were operating with. And I would imagine, you know, that was exactly how Lincoln was. Of course, he grew up poor, mm -hmm. but you know, he was quick to adopt everything that came along the way. And that was probably why, you know, in your framework, like he is so committed to the idea that they had to modernize the American economy and slavery was a throwback to the past. And they had a look to the future. You know, he was very future oriented. And that's one of the reasons why he was so anti-slavery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it seems like what you're describing is the entrepreneurial mindset. And of course, not called an entrepreneurial mindset at the time, but a lot of what you described around invention and creation and forward thinking and bringing resources from one level of productivity to another. It's very much an entrepreneurial framework and entrepreneurial mindset before, during, and throughout his presidency. Yeah. Let's just stay with Lincoln for a minute. You know, we describe him as somebody, he described himself as somebody who was raised to farm work. But the truth is, his father was a failed entrepreneur. He was a carpenter. They grew up in Kentucky and Southern Indiana. And the market revolution hadn't reached there fast enough to make it profitable for carpenters to sell their goods and get them to market. So like as a teenager, Abraham Lincoln would take flatboats down to New Orleans to try to sell goods. It wasn't profitable. So they farmed and they all hated it. Lincoln hated it. His father hated it. Lincoln got away from it as fast as he could. And then he became a politician and a lawyer. And I think, you know, he wasn't a businessman in that sense. In fact, he went bankrupt briefly as a young man, but he was definitely somebody who was like a frontline soldier for the entrepreneurs of the market revolution, representing them in court. And the truth is he became a financial success by identifying as a corporate railroad attorney and helping the, the startup railroad companies make their way in states like Illinois. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Howard, your take 
One, I think that you have oversight for a lot of historical stuff that, you know, you can see the roots of what's happening really today, but also just the insight of how someone who becomes a leader 50 years later, maybe in his childhood, was really very much ahead of his time and thinking about what was going to be the future for himself, just from an opportunity standpoint. One of the biggest benefits I get by being in a room like Strategic Coach is thinking about a bigger future, but thinking about it enough times from enough different perspectives that it not only seems real to me, it almost seems profane not to call it into existence. And I think the challenge somebody like Lincoln has is that he's talking with people that are stuck on the way things used to be. And there's kind of a mistaken belief that you've got this figured out because you've already done it so many times and you're hoping that the future looks a lot like the past because if it does, then you've got things figured out. Most entrepreneurs are good at doing what they've already done, right? But the trick is not to rely on what you've already done, but to think about what could you do or what should you do and how to multiply it. In the beginning, a lot of what later turns out to be genius seems pretty crazy. Yeah. Matthew, you mentioned two things. One is that Lincoln, in his own career, focused on the law and he focused on politics. But my sense is that technology only makes its way in the world based on really good legal structures and also political encouragement for the breakthroughs. So can you talk a little bit about those years when he became active as an adult, you know, having had his childhood experiences. I remember a very famous story, real or apocryphal, I'm not quite sure, but about him actually taking a stranger very quickly in an emergency situation, actually pulling the ropes and getting the flatboat across the river. And at the other end, the person just flipped him a dollar, which at that time was quite a bit more than the trip was worth. And Lincoln saying to himself, I finally understood immediately what the whole secret to life was. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know if that story is true or not. It's a recollection. It's a good account. story. It's a good story. <laughs> the point of the story from Lincoln's perspective, according to the account, was that he realized the value of earning money, free labor. And he had been working for his father up until then. And so he yeah, felt like I, I grew up on a family farm. Right. I understand free labor. Right. So, you know, I'm sure that's true at some level, whether or not the actual story happened. He certainly seemed to appreciate and truly value capitalism and earning money and competitiveness. One of the things that was happening during this period of time that I think everybody in you know your network would appreciate is the like underpinning of the market revolution was the development of the limited liability corporation and mm -hmm. the protections it offered for entrepreneurs to attempt new startups and fail that starts in new york in you know the early 19th century and it spreads so that by the time lincoln is a railroad attorney in the 1840s and 50s you know it's essential for them and their mm -hmm. ability to succeed yeah the other thing is very interesting i grew up in northern ohio in a small town called Milan, like Milan, Italy, but pronounced Milan. And two things historically happened in this town. They dug a canal from Lake Erie down to Milan using a riverbed. It was an eight-mile canal, 
and wheat farmers from Ohio would have their wagons come in on plank roads. So the notion of plank roads where it was muddy, so they put planks almost like railroad ties sideways, and the wagons came in. But in 1847, Milan, Ohio was the second largest wheat port in the world. Okay, only, I think it was either Odessa on the Black Sea or Vladivostok on the West, I think it must have been Odessa, was the largest wheat port in the world. And this little town of Milan was the second largest. And in those days, it was 1,400 people. And when I was growing up a century later, it was 1,400 people. Because what happened is that the railroads, the early railroads were coming in. The canal system had gone in in the United States in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. And that was a lot of Scottish immigrants who had built the British canals were immigrating to the United States, and they built these canals. And the heads of the railroad, more than one, came to the city fathers of Milan, Ohio, and said, you know, this would be a perfect spot that we can join the railroads up with the canal system. And the city fathers said, you got to forget it. This railroad thing isn't going anywhere. Canals are the future. So within 10 years, it was all gone. Nobody used the canal anymore. And they went in six miles further south to a town, and they had three railroads who went through that town. But in 1838, in that same town of Milan, Ohio, a person was born who actually created the next industrial revolution, and that was Thomas Edison. He was actually supposed to be a Canadian, but his father got in trouble with the law. In those days, you just paddled across Lake Erie, and you could be American, and he came across. Yeah. So as I think about this, I realized that entrepreneurs live in their own mind, right? And in a sense, an entrepreneur is somebody who is committed to creating value first. But there's a technology adoption curve. And it's not just technology, it's new things, but it works great with technology. And in a sense, in the beginning, you resist, and then some people get curious, others, you know, finally get to believe, and then finally people embrace, but it takes a lot longer. And it's one of those standard bell curves. In the beginning, you've got a very thin part of the curve, right? It's the beginning, so there's almost none. It's less than 10%, and they're tech enthusiast innovators. It's probably not CEOs, and it's also not people that support the technology, they're probably skeptical, but they're specialists at what they do and they're looking for a way to do what they were already doing better and they come up with something cool. They're an inventor. The next kind of slightly bigger part of the curve is the visionary CEO early adopter. They're people that are generalists and supporters who heard from their skeptical specialist friends about this cool new thing. And unlike the person who is spending their CPU cycles figuring out how to make it work, they're thinking about who can I sell it to or how is this going to unlock next, right? It's almost a who, not how. But the visionary early adopter is the first person to see how to take this innovation and really magnify it but it's still not a lot of money. You have to get to the pragmatist early majority before you start to make money. And in order to sell it to them, 
you can't sell it based on what you're doing. It can't be based on the technology and the whiz bang, this and that. It has to be based on the benefits of what they get. Mm -hmm. And so it really takes a great communicator. And it's not the best technology that wins. It's the one that's adopted. Even more money is made when the conservative late majority gets it. They're not only not buying the technology, they're probably not even making the decision about the business. They're just the part that goes along for the ride and you're getting paid a little bit on a whole lot of people. And then there's finally the skeptics or the laggards. And for the people listening, the reason I brought all that up is you have a personality for adoption as a consumer, but the personality that you choose to use in your own life may be different than the one that you should choose to use in your professional life because you're the steward for the opportunity And in a sense, I don't think it benefits a lot of people to be late to the party or laggards. And I think you're seeing this with politics. You're seeing this with technology. You're seeing this with Stephen's startup health, just in the sense that the game is changing. There's going to be new winners and new losers. Actions have consequences, but so do inactions. And the secret is you're the hero of the story and you have to figure out what comes next and what you're going to do. Yeah. You know, Dan, you bring up this question about what makes these great U.S. presidents and you kind of tie them to these shifts in time periods. I'm wondering if it's more metaphorically connected to entrepreneurship in the sense that what is the value system of the people who are leading and good orators or communicators? Obviously, presidents seem to, you know, hold a position for a period of time to be in that role, you know, one that's magnified greatly. And I think it's incredibly interesting to have people like Matthew go back and study these individuals at great depths and lengths, not just before they became president, but, you know, what was so significant and what has been so significant about what happens next. And I'm just wondering if the lens by which we view presidents, entrepreneurs, and anybody who leads you know, these generational shifts, including entrepreneurs, aren't driven by their value system. And is the value system, and I'd like to hear it from Matthew in particular, the value system of people like a Lincoln and others who might have come since that represent the kinds of values that connect with the time in a way that changes things. Interestingly enough, I was thinking about Howard and Matthew and myself and why we are all both pursuing very different avenues, but I think driven by the value system set in place by our grandmothers, right? So the family values that drove the two of them as sisters, not having easy childhoods, by the way, and split from their parents and put in orphanages and all kinds of stuff that I wonder how much is real versus made up or stories that are told along the line. Howard and Matthew and I should have drinks over that one day because I think there's interesting parallels. But more importantly, the value system they set in place, I know, have made Howard and Matthew and myself, you know, watched our parents, you know, build families with those values. Now we are building families with those values. And I think the values, core values in particular of presidents, of entrepreneurs and people kind of starts at their childhood, but then the question is, what do you choose to kind of build on in your life, personal or professional? Well, I can say just as a political historian, you certainly can appreciate the difference between a political leader who can 
explain the core values he represents or nowadays she represents and those who can't you know who just flip flop around because they don't have any spine or base principle so lincoln was clearly somebody who had principles and he was able to explain what they were and you know when he was president that's what made the victory possible because you had to figure out a way to unite people who didn't always share every value but they shared enough common values that you could bring them together around the idea that you were going to save the union but the only way to save the union was to destroy slavery it took a while it wasn't easy but because of all of his talents he was able to do it that was his great accomplishment didn't you tell me that lincoln was actually kind of a backroom trader that there was a lot more give and take here it wasn't just pure value he was very pragmatic and practical about getting that done. Of course, right? That goes without saying. I don't think anybody in the real world can expect that just because you express a beautiful idea, like at the Gettysburg Address, that that's going to solve problems. You know, it's part of the equation. So he delivers speeches like the Gettysburg Address, but then he also works behind the scenes, you know, in sometimes transactional ways, but mostly just effective leadership ways mm. to get people who should be on the same side working together in a coherent way and that's not always happening in some ways you know what made lincoln a great leader wasn't that he was able to win over the confederates he was able to win over his allies mm -hmm. when they were pulling against each other yeah yeah one of the things that struck me i just want to get your take on this matthew is that it seems to me that in the constitution that there's one office in the land that is basically uh, kind of a wild card office, um, and that's the presidency. And if you look, and I, I did this once, I went back to Eisenhower, because when the war ended, Truman was the president as a result of being the vice president, and then he was in for seven years. And then you have these series where you have the complete term of a president is finished. I guess uh, Truman could have gone for another one, but he had essentially served for two and he wasn't popular, so he wouldn't have won. But then if you look at Eisenhower, you look at Kennedy, you look at Nixon, and I'm just going where you've had an eight-year term and it's up in the air again, whether it's going to be one party or the other. Two years before each of those elections, and if you go back and check it, you couldn't have predicted who the ultimate winner was. And generally, it's somebody who, uh, for, for the most part, who comes from the outside. You know, he's not a system person who becomes the next president. Eisenhower was a general, so he wasn't part of the political system. Kennedy wouldn't have been predicted two years before the election. I don't think Nixon certainly wouldn't have been predicted two years before the election. Reagan wouldn't have been predicted. Clinton wouldn't have been predicted. George Bush Jr. wouldn't have been predicted. I don't think Obama would have been predicted two years before. And my feeling is that it's the ultimate entrepreneurial role in certainly in American politics, maybe in world politics, because the winner might be a winner historically, but the loser is always a loser. Now, that may be a little too profound for me. You're going to have to explain that one to me. Well, the fact that you ran and lost to become president of the United States, you're usually seen as a loser afterwards. Right. You're usually seen as a loser. You may be elected as president and you're a winner, but then it becomes, were you a good president? Were you an effective president? Because you can, Carter is certainly seen as a loser. You know, I mean, 
Nixon, for whatever he did, is seen as a loser, you know, because of events. So my sense is that Lincoln, in a certain sense, was the ultimate entrepreneurial president because he had nothing to recommend himself to the insiders from his history. He had had a losing record in political office going into it, and he was very much of a late ballot presidential winner. On what ballot did he win in the convention to become president? It was the third ballot. Back then, it could be much worse than that. Yeah. But listen, you know, the one thing Howard was trying to say a minute ago, you know, my my emphasis is about how Lincoln was a backroom trader. I do think part of what you're talking about, Lincoln being a, someone familiar with loss in politics, it is partly myth. You know, I'm not saying it's totally myth. He only had one term in Congress before he became president. But what I was telling Howard, you know, when we were having, you know, family dinners is, Lincoln was a successful entrepreneur as a party leader. And the reason why he became president was because he had created, in effect, two parties. He had created the Whig Party, and then he had created the Republican Party. And in our popular culture, we don't give him credit for that. But the people around him certainly respected him as a party leader. And he was not such an outsider and long shot or dark horse candidate in 1860, as some people imagine. Among the insiders, he was incredibly well-known and respected. I still think they thought William Seward, this great political leader from New York, was going to win. But anybody who knew anything understood that Lincoln had plenty to offer. Mm -hmm. And the convention was in his home state. And so there was an edge there that mm -hmm. ultimately tipped the balance. Hey, Matt, I'm going to jump in, but I want you to jump back as soon as I'm done. I've always been fascinated by how many people give up where they didn't realize how close they were to victory. And one of the keys to successful entrepreneurship is staying in the game. As an entrepreneur, you may think you're about to launch a product and it doesn't work, or you launch a marketing campaign and it doesn't work. But if you've got your system set up right and you've got your audience there, you only have to get lucky once sometimes. And I think the same is true in politics. So maybe jump in on that. Mm. Well, like Dan was just saying, Richard Nixon loses to Kennedy. It's a close run affair. And then he runs for governor of California, gets beat badly. And nobody would have thought he could ever come back from that. But it had built up his reputation within the party, within the Republican Party, in a way that actually was doing him good. And so when he ran for president in 1968, he was able to get the Republican nomination. And then because of the way things were so sour during that year in 1968, at the end of the Vietnam War, he was able to squeak through to victory. So, you know, as a historian, I can tell you, predicting the future is a dangerous occupation. And I am not jealous of any of you who are trying to like look ahead to the future because almost everybody who does it gets it wrong. Dan was saying about how they wouldn't have predicted these presidential candidates, but the truth is it's hard to predict almost anything. And I know yeah. you guys feel very confident that you can look ahead and see the next industrial revolution. But like my job is to look back and laugh at all the people in the past who said that they could predict the future and they didn't. But so from my standpoint, as somebody who runs an AI company, I don't think it's smart to try to predict the future. I think it's smart to figure out what you can know fast enough that lets you know faster. And it's time arbitrage. It's the ability to take 
decisive action because you know something while other people are taking tentative action while they're guessing. And it looks like you're predicting the future because it's kind of like a magic trick. But what you're really doing is you're trend following the zeitgeist, you know, the spirit of the times. It's not hard to look at something like blockchain and know that it's going to be important, but it's like the internet. I knew the internet was going to be important when Steve Case was putting AOL discs on every magazine that came to my house, but I wouldn't have thought that cars were going to transform themselves with new features over that or that record stores would go away or that CompUSA would go out of business. I mean, the implications of the future are harder to predict than some of the things. I'm writing one of my little books and it's called Guesses and Bets that basically what we call prediction is actually guessing and betting, okay? And that, like everything else, there's a bell curve distribution of capabilities. There are really good guessers and betters, and there there are really bad guessers and betters. I'd like to bring that back to Steve, because I think, Steve, you've identified quite a long time ago now, it goes back before Startup Health, but you had identified that kind of the center of everything that was going to be really, what I would say, integratively important for certainly the US, but I think generally worldwide, was that we are living with a fairly outdated healthcare system and a scientific research system related to the medical industry And you began seeing all sorts of indicators that new things were possible. You know, if you look back, I didn't realize the 1809 date with Lincoln, but in 1804, a French economist by the name of Say, Jean-Baptiste Say, defined entrepreneur for the very first time that was meaningful in terms of how it's understood today. And what he said was an entrepreneur is someone who takes resources from a lower level of productivity to a higher level of productivity. And they asked him, well, what kind of resources? And he said, any kind of resources, anything becomes possible for the entrepreneurial activity. So Stephen, using that entrepreneurial definition, what were you seeing, let's say, Mike, 2005, you know, 2004, 2005, you had successfully profited from the dot-com revolution and then you started anew. You had to start with something new. What were you seeing? I was seeing a lot of siloed innovation, siloed thinking, and really a siloed mindset for how to innovate, in particular in healthcare, but I think it's clearly evident in other industries, but I'll talk about healthcare. It's just amazed me as I got to learn more and more about what's broken in the healthcare system, that the leadership, whether it's in the, you know, payers, providers, pharma, government, you know, all over the world, investors, even entrepreneurs, that everybody was in their own little silo doing their own little work. And when I thought deeply about something as big as ending cancer, curing disease, or bringing access to care to everyone in the world, and you see people I'll use Howard's father as an example, seemingly with all of the resources and all of the access and everything you could ever need, still not be able to overcome a prognosis or a diagnosis with cancer. And I think we are seeing it in our families every day. But when you look at who's in charge of ending these diseases or curing them, you just see lots and lots of people all over the world in their little silo, academically included. And so from my standpoint, and really what the launch of Startup Health was 
important to do in, in 2011 was shine the spotlight on the idea of collaborative innovation. And we borrow metaphorically from the moon landing back in the 60s as an example, not of a big goal that we want to achieve and we can achieve it if we say it or set it out, but if we collaborate. And not many people realize, but the moon landing was 400,000 people and 20,000 companies collaborating for a decade. Many people think it was just a U.S. collaboration, but it wasn't. It took collaboration from people all over the world. And I think from our standpoint, if we point that metaphor to healthcare, how can we bring together individuals, organizations, and otherwise everybody who cares about achieving those moonshots together? But that entrepreneurial mindset was the missing piece or is the missing piece. There's academics in there, there's investors, philanthropists, there's so many people working and have been working for decades, but not with an entrepreneurial mindset and leadership. And so what we really wanted to bring to the table was organizing the entrepreneurs and then everyone around them, all of the academics and innovators and scientists and people who care deeply. And let's go work on it for a few decades. And so a lot of what we've really seen the need to do is just get entrepreneurs leading everybody included to achieve these seemingly impossible goals, but do it together. And that's kind of been the framework we've used for the past decade and we'll do it for many decades to come. As you said that, it occurs to me that entrepreneurs and politicians are similar in another really important respect. It's that they're the prime storyteller. Leaders create meaning. And when there's a pause and people are chewing and need to swallow, if you create a bite-sized chunk that they get it gets them to next. And that's part of what entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial thinking does is it helps them recognize what's possible, why it's significant, what it makes possible in the future and what you can do now to move towards it. But it's a key skill of entrepreneurs, but also politicians, because without it, you know, leaders have followers and without followers, I'm not sure you're a leader. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I also thought there's another basis for comparison there, because in politics, especially in Lincoln's day, but I think even today, there are no rules. I mean, it is the Wild West. And, you know, that's why it's so hard to collaborate, like getting people together in politics and working together is incredibly challenging. I imagine, you know, when you're an entrepreneur without like this architecture of institutional, you know, history and support and corporate departmentalization, it's a challenge for people. So that's one area where Lincoln excelled and where great leaders always excel. And I think that's, you know, people don't think of entrepreneurial leadership qualities as being collaborative, mm. typically. Mm. But I think what Stephen was saying makes a lot of sense to me. Babs and I, my wife, we were at the 2008 inauguration. So it was something we signed up for a year ahead of time, not knowing who the winner was going to be, but it was a big educational conference for high school students. And we were invited and they had featured speakers. One of them was Doris Kearns Goodwin and the book Team of Rivals had come out and she spoke on that at the convention. But what I got, you know, and from our own work here in Strategic Coach is that from the outside, it looked like 
they were all rivals of each other. But what you're suggesting is maybe Lincoln from the inside actually saw it differently. He didn't see these people necessarily. First of all, he had won, <laughs> you know, so they weren't his rivals. I mean, and even when you got around to 1864, none of those who were the rivals in supposedly in 1860 were really the rivals in 1864, as far as I know. He was more worried about military people than political people. But do you think from his standpoint, he didn't see them as rivals necessarily as all, but he saw them as people with different abilities, with different audiences, with different influences that all had to be brought together if not just the war effort was going to succeed, but the modernizing of the United States was going to be necessary. Right. I think that's true. He didn't see them as rivals. He saw them as allies. But in fairness, it was ugly, like at every stage of the process. The idea that they had a team, you know, it's not a myth, but it romanticizes it. So like you said, there are no rivals left in 1864. Well, that's partly because a bunch of them had been fired. And one of them was Salmon Chase, who was a great rival in 1860. And he tried to run against Lincoln from within the cabinet in 1864. After Lincoln got the nomination, he pushes him out of the cabinet. But this is what Howard and I were talking about in the past. He pushes this rival out of the cabinet because he wasn't quite a team player enough. But he dangles the prospect of naming this guy the next chief justice of the Supreme Court as long as this guy stays loyal to the mission, you know, the overall union coalition and the campaign effort. And he did. And when the chief justice died, this man, Salmon Chase, was named as his replacement. So that was the transactional nature behind the scenes that we don't celebrate, but it's important. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I'm translating it into entrepreneurial life. And I've been involved, you know, in seven political campaigns, four to three. I'm up by one in terms of winning or losing. And, you know, I was really, really struck about the high risk taking right off the bat that a person really essentially sets aside what they've already established as a profession, as a reputation, and they throw their hat in. You know, politics is very binary. You only win if you're 100% in, and then it's not guaranteed. But if you're not completely in, you're going to lose. And so you really, really have to commit basically everything you've done in your lifetime up to taking the risk of being judged by a jury that you have limited control over about whether your ideas for the future are correct. So I'm very, very struck by this conversation. Yeah, by the way, Dan, you started the podcast by saying you thought Lincoln was one of the three best presidents and there's an open loop I've been thinking about it several times throughout. Who are the other two? Washington and FDR, I think, are the other two. Of the first three, I mean, we're on the threshold. I mean, if this turns out to be a fourth revolution, I'm of the mind that it were actually the microtechnology was the last one and all that that impacted. But now I think that your field, actually, Howard, I think is, if you talk about steam power, being the, oh, yeah. um, you know, the, it's going to terraform everything. Yeah. Yeah. And right. I believe that's true. I believe that's true over a period of time, because when it becomes really widely available as a tool, I think everybody's going to have a different use for it. So just so that we're clear, AI as a technology, 
but nobody cares about the technology. And if you're saying, you know, is machine learning good or is reinforcement learning? I don't care. What I care is one step higher chunked than that, where you say, why does AI or something like it matter? And the answer is to amplify intelligence. People want to make better decisions. They want to take smarter actions as automatically as possible, if possible, and then they want to continually raise the bar and improve their performance or the quality of their life. And over the next 25 years, I believe that this concept of amplified intelligence is going to be the, the thing that calls forward medicine, you know, new forms of manufacturing, how we live, where we live, how long we live, the quality of life, so many different things. And on one hand, you can take advantage of the technology and say, I want to be a technologist. But that's like in the 1849 gold rush saying, oh, I want to pan for gold. A whole lot of people made money not by speculating or panning for gold, but selling beer and brothels or picks and shovels to the miners or starting a delivery service that says, I've got guys with guns who are going to protect your gold and make sure it gets to the bank safely. That's how Wells Fargo started. As an entrepreneur, if you kind of have a map to the future, you have to figure out based on your own unique ability what do I want to build and when do I want to make it available to the other people? Timing is important as well. Yeah. Steve, we're getting near the end of our podcast here, but from the standpoint of just having a different framework for rethinking a lot of things that you've been thinking about for 20 years, what's one or two things that are becoming new and promising for you out of this discussion? Well, I think the historical context, accurate historical context that Matthew's bringing to the table, I think is incredibly illustrative to, I think, really understanding the next, let's call it 100 or 200 years, because I, I don't think we're talking about, you know, five or 10 or 15 years here. We're talking about, I think, something that Matthew spends his life looking back a couple hundred years and, you know, connecting dots, if you will, to things that do give different meaning to the word perspective on things. And I think I have an entrepreneurial perspective, period, right? So I think the consideration that needs to be given to all this historical context is very important for the future. However, I think we're living in a moment in time where we can talk about, and again, I have the lens of looking at this from healthcare perspective, but I think, you know, every minute of every day about how do we end cancer or cure disease or bring access to care to everyone in the world. And I think about, you know, in particular, the three of our dads, Howard's dad with cancer and Matt's dad with diabetes and my dad now with dementia and all of the other diseases and illnesses and stuff that kind of creeps up in families. And I think about how do we take our entrepreneurial experience, perspective, resources, capabilities with historical context and make sure that the next 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or for our lives or our children's lives you know, not have to deal with the same stuff we have to deal with or had to deal with. Yeah. That to me is just what I'm thinking about is, okay, 10, 20, 30 years from now, how do we make sure we look back and say, we were part of the solution to finally solve some of the world's greatest health challenges. Yeah. And I think that you have to look back a couple hundred years to look forward a couple hundred. You just highlighted something incredibly important and it's mindset. There are so many and Howard, people... I'm going to ask you to also uh, <laughs> identify the new area of thinking that came out of... It's, it's mindset for me. And the point is, 
Some people find excuses. Other people find ways to win. Some people find ways to cleanse. Other people find ways to clog. There's lots of different strategies. I think when you're talking about Lincoln as an entrepreneur or a deal maker, you're talking about somebody who finds a way. You're talking about someone who sees the bigger future. I think mindset is one of the hidden engines that powers life. And it's cool to see it hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, because technology continues to change, but human nature is much easier to predict because it changes so much slower, if at all. Yeah. If I could just add one little chair on top of my conclusion, Dan, it would be this idea that Matthew, I think when dating this back to 1904, 1804 or 1806, 1809, 1809 gave to me <laughs> is this notion of going back 200 to look forward 200. Yeah. And so just broadening that out. And a lot of people have very short-term historical you know, context they use, 5, 10, 20 years. And they also think about only 3, 5, 10 years. And I think that idea of opening up the aperture is really profound. Thank you, Dan, for bringing Matthew <laughs> to this podcast discussion because it really does, within the family, by the way, yeah. open up a whole new potential for discussion and discovery. Yeah. Matthew, your take just, you know, Taking how many years, 30 years of learning, 30 years of research, 30 years of investigation, and being presented with a challenge to put it kind of in a entrepreneurial context that relates to the way that all three of us spend our daily lives. What's your take on this? Well, part of what I can't get over is, you know, I spent decades at the kids' table with these two. <laughs> at the seders and at the summer gatherings. And, you know, I never listened to them for more than 20 seconds at a time before we'd start teasing each other. So to actually listen to what they have to say <laughs> makes me realize how smart they were all along. Well, you had an umpire. You had a referee and an umpire here. <laughs> I feel like we've graduated from the kids' table finally. But, you know, to me, it's interesting to hear people try to figure out how to look around that corner. It's such a challenge. You know, I, I couldn't do it myself. So I'm definitely in awe of people who do it successfully. And I know all of you guys are trying to do that. But from my disciplinary perspective, I guess the one takeaway I would leave with you is it does help to be modest and humble about your ability to get that all done and to recognize there's going to be more setbacks than successes. And I think what Stephen was just saying is true. You know, when you have the wider perspective, it helps put things in perspective. And that's, you know, that's important. Yeah. The thing that I got from this, and I'm going to, you know, really explore this a little bit more. I was uh, reference, you know, was on the topic of predictions and what I get from it is actually what Howard does, because I talk to him a lot, and Stephen, because we talk a lot, is that we actually have a better grasp of the present than other people do. We can actually see things moving in the present, and some of them are slowing down and some of them are speeding up. And I think it's that distinction between what's actually happening right now that you kind of say, hmm. This one looks like it'll get bigger. This one looks like it's getting less. And I think that's actually the greatest insight that I took from this. Well, I think I have to give a shout out to our moms collectively who are going to, if nothing else, love this podcast episode, Dan. If nobody else does, we know at least that three of them will in our families because this was a fun conversation. And I hope the first of many. It was great to have such an important conversation, by the way, with, with blood. 
Yeah. And I'll add, you know, for a historical context, we didn't really talk about what Matthew does, but Matthew is one of the world's foremost Lincoln scholars and presidents and many big corporations hire Matthew to come in and channel Lincoln to, in a sense, take his perspective at the table. And Matt has even taught at the U.S. War College. So it's really an interesting technique to look back because, as Stephen says, your ability to look backwards in chunks comfortably creates the lens that lets you look forward in chunks that big comfortably as well. Mm -hmm. And it's important not just to look back three or five news cycles, but again, to zoom back and figure out where is their signal rather than just noise. Mm -hmm. I should say this, Dan, you are a a very knowledgeable historian yourself. So uh, (laughs) you dropped a lot of history knowledge in this session. I can't help myself. I play professor and I'll poke holes at a few things, you know, but as a student, you're an A+. Plus. I, I got to give you that. <laughs> As a teacher, now. he's even better. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. coach. By the way, I'm so glad to hear Matthew say that because Howard and I have been students of Dan's for 23, yeah. four years. And so if we found out today that it was all made up, we'd be really, really uh, <laughs> yeah. taken. But no, Thanks, no, Matt. I feel so much better. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. I do too. I give Howard a B plus, but I'll give Dan an A. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. So (laughs) I feel much better. (laughs) Anyway, so this is kind of a broader, as Stephen was mentioning, take a look at the free zone. And my definition of the free zone, just to wrap this up, is that I think that the free zone is where collaborative-minded entrepreneurs can actually take advantage of each other's capabilities to do kind of a bypass from being caught up in a revolution that's ending and a, another revolution that hasn't quite started yet and actually creating a place for success and achievement that doesn't actually exist in the competitive economies. Collaborative bootstrapping. Yeah. And there is the next episode of the Free Zone uh, podcast with Ethel and Edith's grandsons yeah. and Dan Sullivan. Well, thank you for including me in this one. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, Howard. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Okay. Bye. All right. Take care.